You go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Have you ever been tempted to disagree with God's will? Have you ever been tempted to disagree with God's will or God's plan? Some of you will think, well, no, of course not. I know that God's will is perfect, and it would be foolish to disagree with it. But have you ever been tempted to disagree with God's will? Of course you have. Of course you have. Though most times, a lot of times, by God's grace and strength, we are able to fight that temptation and overcome it, while other times we succumb to the temptation and we disagree with God's will in our hearts, in our actions, with our motives. But because honestly, the temptation can happen in the blink of an eye. The temptation to, to question God's will, to wonder if this is really right, happens in such a quick moment that we don't have time to fight back almost. It's because of our, our knee-jerk reaction, our human response, which of course is tainted by our sin nature, disagrees with God. And that's just what happens. Here's an easy example. The moment you find out you have a bad diagnosis, that moment, the temptation is there to say, this can't be. This isn't how it's supposed to go. But what about this other thing? This morning's passage, we're going to see that very temptation, where we will see then a response and diagnosis from Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, I'm going to read from verse 31, and to give us context, into the beginning of chapter 9. Let's hear God's word. Mark eight thirty one. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, is what he said. Because, where, where, where am I? Sorry. I lost my place here. Uh, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So there, this morning we're going to look specifically at verses 31 through 33. Where it begins, last week we looked at kind of the summary of bringing us back up to speed where, where Peter had confessed, and, and we assume on behalf of the disciples with him, that, that Jesus, you are the Christ. That you are the Messiah that we have anticipated. You are him. And so then here in verse 31, 
Jesus began to teach. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And it's interesting because just coming out of this, this proclamation of, of, of Peter already having identified him as the Christ, and now he's identified as the Son of Man. It's because rather than launching into a teaching for Jesus, rather than launching into this teaching about his, his supreme divinity and power, instead Jesus taught about his mission. And his mission was incarnational. His mission was here. It was in the flesh. Weakness was the way. And so the title even of the Son of Man uh, takes not away from his divinity, but it shows the reality of his mission. This is necessary. He is teaching that the Son of Man must. So there's a few things that must happen. And this is where Peter begins to knee-jerk reaction and go, wait, what did you just say? This must happen? Why did he say it must happen? Was it that he couldn't escape the suffering? That, that something was going to overpower him in any way? Of course not. Or to quote J.C. Ryle with the next, he says, Did he mean that he must die in order to give the world a great example of self-sacrifice and self-denial, that this and this alone was made, made his death necessary? End quote. Of course not. That's impossible. Why then must he suffer? Why must he be killed? Why must he rise again? Well, it was necessary, as we know from Scripture, that without it, there would be no atonement for sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the sacrifice on the cross of Christ himself, there would be no completion or satisfaction of God's law and his wrath. It would remain against us. He must die. Because without his death, we would never have life. Because it's death that we are owed. The wages of sin is death and separation eternal. So he must die. And he must rise again for our justification. Romans 4.25 says. Because, as it says, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If he had not been raised, your faith is useless. It's in vain. And you are still in your sins if there was no resurrection. He must suffer. He must die. And he must rise again. He must suffer many things, the text says, and be rejected. This Automatically brings my mind to Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. This was not new. Isaiah 53 said it exactly. This was what would come of the Messiah, that he must suffer many things as he did. Be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Really the Sanhedrin, which we know in the end, is who rejected him and put him up to death. And then it says, and after three days, rise again. Now this was a shocking teaching by Jesus. Their Messiah, their friend, their Savior. They see him as one filled with power to heal. They've witnessed this powerful man before them. This this man who's not just a man. He's much more than that. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb. He is the Christ. And he's powerful. And he's one that is filled with hope as he preached. And now he teaches them that the end of his mission is coming and he must suffer. In his body as a man, he must be weak and subdued. He must be accused and lied about. He must be dishonored. He must be humiliated. He must suffer and he must die. It was shocking. It was difficult news. It was hard to process. So here, in the blink of an eye, the temptation to disagree with God's will was there. It tends to come when we are facing hard concepts to swallow. The temptation to disagree with God's will tends to come when we're facing hard concepts to swallow. Hard truths. What do you mean? Just because I've told one lie, that's enough to send me to hell for eternity. That's a hard truth to swallow. So then one person wants to disagree with God's will. Well, you can't just send someone to hell forever for a lie. They want to disagree with God's plan. The temptation is there when we face painful realities. God, who who cares and is merciful and compassion, how, how can this be equal with him? How can this be so? Or we are tempted to disagree with God's will when we are faced with the opposite of what was hoped for. Well, I'd hoped my life would go this way. I'd hoped that my next year would go this way. And it's not. So is this right? Is everything right? In these moments that you face, bam. Without a moment to even breathe, temptation is present. Temptation flares up. And here, Peter speaks up. He speaks up. Verse 32, even though it says, And Jesus had said this plainly, Peter took him aside and, and began to rebuke him. So Jesus, stop, stop, stop. What you're saying, no, 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 that's not true. What you're saying, that's not the way. No, you can't suffer. No, you can't be rejected. No, you can't die. Peter begins to rebuke him and tell him, that's not the way that we had planned it. That's not the way that we think it should go. That, that doesn't even seem right at all. Peter begins to rebuke him and say, no, it can't be so, Jesus. Peter, in the split second, was tempted and fell. Failed immediately. He was trapped by his own desires. What he wanted, what he thought. He'd failed in no time at all. 
And you and I are maybe not so quick or so dense to call God out openly and publicly, but we still do. We still fail. You may think things like, well, that's not fair. That doesn't seem right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Why wouldn't have God done this instead? Peter was tempted with all the alternatives, right? You can't be taken. What about us? We need you here. What about the kingdom we're building? You can't suffer. You're to be victorious. You can't die. You're supposed to reign over us. Who will lead us? Who will help us if you're gone? Often the problems of temptations in the split second confronts us when we're not ready. We're not prepared. John Owen says, Satan is always tempting us, but we are not to be ignorant of his devices. We are to be, end quote, we are to be on alert of our weaknesses. We are to be aware of our frailty in every situation, if we can anticipate What are the temptations that may arise here or today or tomorrow when I face this? What are the temptations? How might Satan try to devour you tomorrow? Are you aware of his devices and what he might use? Peter here was tempted with his own desires. He was tempted with a path of ease. He was tempted with a different way for God to be glorified. And... Peter is no different than you or I. Daily, we're trying to decipher the the, the way that God can be glorified and I can still get what I want. Every day, I I want God to be glorified and I still want what I want. Can't they both happen at the same time? So then we, we tend to maybe have this temptation to disagree when God needs to be glorified through a way we don't want. God needs to be glorified through pain and death and suffering and accidents and trials and tribulations. And if that's the way for tomorrow, we are tempted then to disagree with it. We cannot be ignorant then of Satan's devices, what he will use to tempt us. The areas of our weakness, of our frailties, of our desires even. What do we want? How do we want God to be glorified? What's the way that you have determined the path of your life? Because that's the very way you're going to get tripped up. We ought to be aware of Satan's devices. Because this is indeed Satan's work. When Jesus then turns right to Peter and he says, You get behind me, Satan. He wasn't calling Peter Satan. But he was expressing that what was coming out of Peter, an expression of his heart, was satanic. It was against God in every way. This just reminds me of the the prosperity gospel. Right? There's no suffering for Christians. That's what Peter's saying. No, 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 the way is not suffering. The way is just blessing and and perfection and and beauty. And what does Jesus say? But get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. You are not thinking, he says there, that get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're setting your mind on the desires of the flesh, the desires of what you want. So when a person says, oh, well, you know, if you have more faith or you give more, God will bless you more and you'll be more comfortable in this life. That is a satanic message that Jesus himself rebuked openly. He said, no, that's not the way of God. God does not always, just the blessing of God doesn't mean, oh, well, here's two paths, and if one is easy, that must mean God's in it. That's baloney. That's not so. And so 
you know, a lot of people in the prosperity gospel say, well, you know, the, the more faithful you are, the, more, the closer you are to God, the, the, the easier you are, the more blessed your life is. If you're sick and suffering, you must, be, you must not have much faith. You must not be very near to God if you're sick and suffering. Get more faith. Become more like God and you'll, you'll have more blessings flow. Become more like God. How about we become more like Jesus, who suffered many things. Become more like Jesus. You're going to become more like a suffering servant. It's quite the opposite of the prosperity false gospel. He says, get behind me, Satan. It reminds me of the occasion where Satan himself was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. He was tempting him to deviate from the plan. He was tempting him to go to a path of ease, away from suffering, away from the cross, away from obedience to God and God's will. He was tempting him to deviate from the hard plan. Satan tempts him by, after Jesus had been fasting 40 days and there was this discomfort of hunger in his body, Satan tempts him by pointing out the reality of the pain. He says, you're hungry, right? Ah, you feel that. In your gut, right? Well, do something about it. He says he tempts him, not only pointing out the reality of the pain, but then dangling before him some spiritual uh, miscommunication there. He says, well, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, which how many times does Satan tempt us with things like, well, if you're a Christian, then you shouldn't be going through this or this, right? If God really loved you, if God was powerful enough, you, this wouldn't have happened to you. So then we're tempted in that moment with facing the reality of pains and then the if statements from the enemy. And then he told Jesus, well, just command it because the pain's real. So command those stones to become bread. Prove that you're not a fake. Prove it. Rid yourself of the hunger. Escape the trial. And of course, Jesus responds, it is written. Goes back to the Bible. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by the very word of God that comes from his mouth in Matthew 4 4. And then two more temptations, including Satan misusing and twisting Scripture itself. He twists the Scripture to try to uh, trap Jesus. Then Jesus finally says to him, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Be gone, Satan. Reminds me of get behind me, Satan. So here, he says, get behind me. And he gives the reason why he, he says it's, he calls him Satan, or, or speaks out against Satan. The, where the word for gives us that indication in the text. Get behind me, Satan, for, because you are not Setting your mind on the things of God. Setting. It's a very intentional word. It's very intentional. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Or, but you are setting your mind on the things of man. There's intentionality. We seem to sometimes think that if we just put it in neutral, then maybe we could coast into godliness. No. If you put it in neutral, you're rolling backwards. If you are not intentional about setting your mind on the things of God, you will have your mind set on the things of man. We are not in a neutral position in life. We are in the, the river that is raging, and if you do not fight against it, you are going towards the things of man, the things of the earth, the desires of the flesh. You are not naturally inclined towards the things of God. 
We need to set our mind intentionally on the things of God. Romans 8 verses 5 and 8 says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 8. They cannot. Those who are in the flesh, those who are just going with the flow, those who are not intentionally fighting the temptations against their desires are not pleasing God. That's just the natural direction, is earthliness, fleshliness, the desires that we want that are comfortable, easy, and what we seem to think as right. It's a whole about intentionality, setting your mind. In Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19, it says, For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So for you and for me, how is it we are to be better prepared to fight temptation? Well, of course, the same way Jesus did, knowing Scripture, knowing Scripture, and then having him apply it to our lives and, and make it powerful in and through us. But as I said earlier, we fight by knowing Satan's devices, knowing the ways in which he is going to tempt you or could tempt you, a frailty, a desire you may have that you're hoping mashes with God's will. And if it doesn't, then there is a moment of temptation. We must know what tempts us, what traps might be set for us, and not just in the world around us, not just like, oh, the, the worldly things that we have to avoid, you know, like don't go gambling and don't go watching a movie theater. The, the things of the world, they only tempt you because of what's in your heart. We ought to know not just what's out there. Who cares what's out there? What's going on at home? What's going on in your very heart? That's what we have to know. As Richard Sibbs says, uh, that Jesus was not only addressing Peter's words about his rebuke, but also his heart. The Lord sees beyond our outward action and words to the motivation of our hearts. End quote. He saw his heart. He saw that he had set his mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man, on the things of earth. He set his mind, he set his will, he set his desires on what Peter wanted. Not necessarily what God wanted, no matter what. And that's hard to do. That's hard to say, whatever you want, God, no matter what that looks like. You know, often, I, I, I thought about it kind of after my teen years, but, you know, every time a youth group would leave on, like, a trip, you'd pray for safety as you travel, and I thought, well, why don't we just pray for God's will to be done, including flat tires or accidents? Why don't we just pray that, God, whatever you want to do today so that you might be glorified, including accidents, including trials, so be it. Let us accept that. Let us be content with your will today. Yes, we want safety in our travels, but we are a blank check before you 
and this is yours, and we want to be content no matter what happens. That's what I want in my heart. I don't want to only think, well, God was with us in safety, but if we weren't safe, well, God wasn't with us. That's not how it goes. And I don't want that to be even in my heart. And so then Colossians 3 is a good place for self-examination of some of the, the, the inward realities that can uh, be the heart or the root of our temptations. So write this down, Colossians 3, verses 2 to 10, and pray over it later. And as you do, ask God as you read it, is there anything in me that leads me to temptation or weakens my fight against temptation? What are the, the, the points in my heart? Colossians 3, verses 2 to 10, here's what it says. Set your mind on things that are above, not things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. But seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices... And had to put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. God, is there anything here in my heart that is going to trip me up or is going to be the reason I don't see the temptation? Or the reason I'm not able to fight the temptation because of a desire that I have to win an argument. The desire that I have to remain bitter at somebody because I'm in the right. The desire I have to just think that I accomplished it so I don't need to be grateful to God. But what is it in me that, that's when I'm faced with temptation to, to choose my way rather than God's way? Today or tomorrow, as you may be tempted to disagree with God's will, remember to set your mind on the things that are above. To be aware of your sin nature and to put to death the earthly desires that is not renewing you after the image of Christ. Fight in prayer. But, really important, do not beat yourself up when you fail. Because that is also satanic. It is against the gospel to beat yourself up when you fail. The gospel says you are welcomed by God, you are loved by God, you are forgiven by God, not because of your efforts. Not because of your perfection in doing what's right. You are loved by God because of his grace. And mercy. That's the gospel. And so do not beat yourself up when you fail. It's not by works that he saved you, loves you, or will bring you to his home. It is by Christ and grace alone. Remember that. Don't beat yourself up when you fail and you, you think that this is the way God should do things. But instead submit yourself to him, to examination, to forgiveness. And then pursue him with all you have. Maybe for, for you or for someone you know, the most significant way that you've been tempted to disagree with God is through disagreeing with his plan of salvation. How many people do, and, and all of us did, before we sur surrendered to him? The hard truth that you have sinned against him and that sin will keep you out of heaven. 
if it's unforgiven. And the only way for it to be forgiven is through Christ having suffered, been rejected, died, and rising again for you. Don't ever be tempted to, to need a plan that puts you at the center. Christ alone is the center. You alone are the undeserving recipient. Don't fight. Don't excuse. Don't run away. For all who sense God drawing near, embrace him as Savior. Be forgiven by his mercy and trust his word. So that his grace towards you and you and you and me is not in vain. We will be tempted to disagree with God's will. So may God, through his word, through the Holy Spirit, through his people... Help us, strengthen us, equip us to fight that temptation. To have a moment of pause and say, I feel that in me. I feel it to say, this shouldn't be the way. But God, I know you are good. I know you never make a mistake and there is no such thing as a chance or as bad luck or good luck. Nothing happens by accident. You are overall and I believe you. And I want to trust you in it even though it's hard. That's the truth. And so then we just be honest before God and before others and say, here's how I'm tempted to not trust him with this thing because it's hard. I need help. I need help because I am tempted to disagree with God's will that I know is perfect and I know is good and I know it glorifies him above anything that I ever could have thought of. So may he transform how I trust his will day in and day out and give us increasing strength over our life but yet recognizing we will still fail because we are still plagued with sin. But may, may he be glorified as he does help you fight. As you see Peter and you say, that's ridiculous, I would never do that. It's only by God's grace that he would restrain your tongue for five more seconds than Peter. So we celebrate his grace in our lives in restraining us and in bringing us to himself. May he be glorified as we fight. Let's pray. Oh God, you are holy. You have a hatred for sin, all sin. Not just external sins that people know, but the sins of our hearts and our thought lives. You hate them. You hate them because they rob you of glory. They say you are not worthy. God, you are indeed worthy of all of our affection, all of our lives. So we confess we are full of sin and have a great need of a Savior. We are so thankful for Christ. And for even what he declared to his disciples, which was true and which we rely upon, that he came to suffer and die and rise again so that we may be justified. Thank you for that gospel, the good news, that message, that if we accept it and live in light of it, that you may be glorified. Because not we have accomplished something, but you have accomplished it all. Help us to trust in you day in and day out and help us to fight the temptation to disagree. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.